Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is February the 5th, 2022. It's beginning, unfortunately, to feel a little bit like September 1939 or August 1914. The, the war, the, the noise, the worry of war uh, is beginning to seem more and more real. Uh, headlines today uh, from the New York Times, Russian troops in the final stages of readiness. I'm not sure what they're ready for, but it's very worrying. Um, According to the Times, all options are not on the table as Biden moves troops closer to the Ukraine. That's, I guess, one thing to worry less about, although I guess all options mean nuclear war, which is unimaginable. Um, the rest of the world are scrambling to figure this one out. The French and German leaders are uh, reporting today, are, are talking to Putin um, and Ukraine. They're the the good cops to the American bad cops as the U.S. forces build up. Um, there are people who really don't like Putin, like Anne Applebaum, who argue that Putin would indeed risk war. I'm not quite sure of that. Uh, Anne's been on the show, but perhaps she's blinkered by her obsession with uh, autocracy and uh, populism. Um, this is a great power issue. Um, in the Washington Post, we have a piece suggesting that the United States is warning China of embarrassment if it backs Russia on the Ukraine. I'm not quite sure whether the Chinese would. I'm not sure how they'd be embarrassed, and I'm not sure if they'd be particularly worried about uh, being embarrassed. The map is very worrying. Here's a map from The Economist about the Russian buildup of troops. But I wonder what the longer term meaning and implications and indeed cause of this conflict are. People like Anne Applebaum focus on Putin and his neo-authoritarianism, but there are bigger structural issues. Uh, last uh, year, I talked to perhaps the world's leading thinker on energy politics, Daniel Yergin. Um, last year, he had a new book out called The New Map, Energy, Climate and the Clash of Nations. There's a paperback out now with a new introduction with um, some new stuff on, on South China Sea. And I know that Daniel has an interesting take on this conflict in terms of energy. So I'm thrilled that uh, Daniel is back talking to me from his home, his house in Washington, D.C. Daniel, how worried are you about the current situation in the Ukraine? Uh, I First, Andrew, I'm glad to be back with you and uh how the world changes uh, in a year and a half. But uh, I think this polarization that that you've pointed to has reached a new level. Putin has succeeded in reinvigorating NATO. And uh, we've, uh, on our side, have uh, succeeded in uh, in strengthening with this is this burgeoning Russian-Chinese uh, alliance. So I think you... Uh, your opening about what the risks are are very very relevant. Uh, I wrote. I just say I wrote my first book about uh, the origins of the Soviet American Cold War, and I never really expected to be writing a book about a new Cold War. 
Uh, but I felt like that when I was writing the the new map and then doing the revision and maybe even feel it more today. And the risks, as you say, are growing, including the risks of accident. Ukraine, of course, one of the complexities of Ukraine is this um, gas pipeline and oil dominating the running the economy. How, in your view, in your reading, and, 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 and you wrote some really interesting, very prescient stuff about energy and this new crisis in the Ukraine in the new map, how central is the issue of energy to the conflict and the, the tensions in, in the Ukraine, particularly Russia's reading of the situation? Well, this occurs at a time when all of the world's energy markets are really tight. The world's gas market, the world's oil market, the world's coal market, and Russia as an energy superpower is a big beneficiary of that. So that's one of the cards that Putin has in his hand as he uh, moves forward uh, in this uh, diplomatic and military game that he's playing. So energy is a big component because Europe and Russia are so interconnected in terms of energy and normally, Russia provides about 35% of uh, Europe's gas. A lot of it, almost all of it, used to flow through Ukraine, but the Russians over the last 10 or 15 years have built other pipelines to go around Ukraine. But what happens there, uh, if you get into a conflict, it will have a big impact on global gas markets, and it will certainly have a big impact sending oil prices even higher than they are today, perhaps much higher. Because if I can just add, if I could just add one thing, because remember, two of the world's three biggest oil producers are now arrayed against each other, Russia and the United States. What about the Chinese uh, piece of this, which seems to be perhaps the most important and perhaps even worrying um, piece of the puzzle? Uh, as I, I quoted this Washington Post piece, U.S. warns. China risking embarrassment if it backs Russia on Ukraine. But how intimately is the Ukraine crisis bound up with Taiwan and a possible Taiwan crisis? Certainly people see the parallel there. Uh, Russia may, basically believes that the U.S. wrested Ukraine away from it. That's, or at least that's Putin's line. He wrote a 5,000-word essay to that effect. And China basically sees the U.S. as the protector of Taiwan, which it claims. So there's definitely a, uh, a strong parallel there. And this relationship, you know, Putin was just in, uh, just in the last, yes, you know, yesterday in Beijing. And he and uh, Xi Jinping upped their relationship, made it more, much more looking like an alliance. And I have a story in the new map. Uh, 2019, I was at the St. Petersburg International Economic Forum, and who was, this is Putin's version of Davos. Actually, I think I was there, there. I, I may have been there in 2018, but anyway, that's Putin's attempt to become like Davos, right? Exactly, and he had Xi Jinping there as his special guest, and I remember uh, Putin apologized. He said to Xi Jinping, I'm sorry, I know you came from China, a different time zone. I kept you up to four o'clock in the morning talking. And Xi Jinping said, oh, no, it doesn't matter. We never have enough time to talk. And you know that what they were talking about then is what they were talking about yesterday in Beijing, which is their opposition to what they see, what they believe is a US-dominated international order uh, that they want to change and overturn. And they're coming closer and closer to being united in that uh, in that undertaking. 
What are the historical precedents for this, uh, Daniel? I, I'm always thinking of the 19th century, Concert of Europe, Metternich, the Russians reacting against the Western powers. I mean, if indeed the Chinese and the Russians somehow orchestrated simultaneous invasions of Ukraine and Taiwan, there's not an awful lot the West could do, is there? It would be uh, it would it's a it would be a nightmare for the West of how to how to respond. Uh, it would be, you know, we would, if that happens, we would, the next day it would be, we'd be living in a very different world. Uh, you know, you, you, uh, Andrew, you're looking, you're looking at the different historical parallels or lessons. And I think that's the right thing to do because so often things happen that people, you know, when they went to war in uh, August of uh, 1914, they did not think that it was going to be four years of grueling, devastating war. No one contemplated that. And I have an essay in the revised, in the paperback edition called The Four Ghosts Who Haunt the South China Sea. And it's really meant to be a cautionary tale. And it goes exactly to where you started at the beginning. There. Yeah, and you, you call that in a, in a lovely Atlantic piece recently, the world's most important body of water. Exactly. Which is chilling what, because it's yeah. not important because we love the water. It's not a place we go swimming. It's important for its geostrategic significance. Exactly. One third of world trade passes through it and a, much of China's oil imports pass through it. And the risk is that, um, uh, and it just, it has a kind of pre-1914 feel to it that people stumble into it. There have been several near collisions of U.S. and Chinese naval ships in the South China Sea. Imagine if something happened now where either a U.S.-Russian plane collided over Ukraine or U.S.-Chinese ships collided in the South China Sea. The mechanisms to, to temper down, control a crisis, to have a dialogue just aren't there as they were even a few years ago. Yeah, I think you're right to bring up the, the shadow of August 1914. We, we uh, of course, are obsessed with 1939. We did a show recently with Jeffrey Wheatcroft, who's written a wonderful book called Churchill's Shadow, which is in many ways quite critical of Churchill. But uh, Wheatcroft acknowledges that was one thing that Churchill was very good at, which is telling a narrative, spinning a yarn, which he did brilliantly in 1939 and 1940 and 1941. Do you think one of the problems in the West, Daniel, is, I mean, of course, everyone says we need a Churchill, which is a, an absurd thing to say, but we don't have anyone able to, to tell a story because no one can make sense of it. You know, Joe Biden is about as clueless as anyone. Uh, Boris Johnson, Macron, uh, none of them are able to tell a story of, of what we're facing. So your your reference to 1914 and August of 1914 is critical because, of course, the statesmen at that time, whether it was Lord Grey or Batman Holweg or whoever, none of them understood what they were participating in. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, six weeks before uh, the war began, the British, the Royal Navy made a friendship visit to the to Kiel, to Germany. Right. Uh, and. It, people were saying, well, ah, the tension's down now, uh, you know, we're, we're going to get on. And then they just, once the machinery, the gears started clicking, there was just no turning back. And that's right. There was no, I think you're right. There was no overall arching sense of what they were really engaged in. And 
and uh, how far-reaching and how devastating it would be. Do you think that in Moscow and Beijing, they smell blood when it comes to Washington, D.C.? Do they get the sense that the Americans are weaker now than they've been for perhaps 100 years? I think there is, there's no sense, there's no, no question that there's a difference in, in uh, the uh, correlation of forces, as the uh, Soviet used to call it, are different. If I can just give an example, when Putin annexed Crimea and the sanctions began, he went to China and he made a deal with them and it sort of was, now with huge sanctions impending, he's there now, but it's a different China in 2022 than 20. It's a much richer, more powerful country. I, you know, just see a few months ago, the uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Milley, described a test of a Russian, uh, of a, a Chinese hypersonic missile. He called it a near Sputnik moment. It was a shock uh, how advanced their military is. So I think um, when they look at the, and then they turn around and look at the United States. How can you conclude that the United States is anything other than a highly divided, highly polarized country uh, outside the United States? What I hear from other countries, the pullout from Afghanistan uh, was pre looks pretty devastating. And in the Middle East, uh, it, there's a sense that the U.S. is pulling back from the region. Uh, in, in the new edition of the new map, I write about something that's got, kind of got overlooked which is a peace treaty between the United Arab Emirates and uh, and uh, Israel, which, you know, unthinkable a few years ago. But both those countries are just looking at reality, saying not only do we have a great economic relationship, the U.S. is leaving the region, and, and therefore we need to, as two leading regional powers, we need to be allied with each other against other threats, including specifically Iran. Iran's interesting. The new map, uh, Daniel Yergin's wonderful new book, Energy, Climate and the Clash of Nations, is geostrategic. We've done a number of shows about maps. I had um, your British contemporary in some ways, Daniel uh, Tim Marshall, Prisoners of Geography, 10 maps that explain everything about the world. He included a map actually uh, in, in that book when he came on the show about Iran. Is there one map? Daniel, that explains the world, one single map that you think is, would it be the map of the South China Sea? Well, I think that could be the risk of the South China Sea is a map of, um, you know, a very obvious place where you could have, uh, you know, where conflict could begin. Because very briefly, Daniel, for because not everyone is as sophisticated a geographer as you, explain where the South China Sea is and what its geostrategic significance actually is. Well, the South China, if you, it flows down from China down to, and it ends to, as you as you're getting to Singapore, uh, and Vietnam borders it, uh, uh, the Philippines border it, uh, Malaysia borders it, other, other so series of countries border it. The significance, Indonesia uh, at the very bottom. The significance is that it's a very it's a large body of water, uh, and it is as mentioned before one third of world trade goes through it. Uh, the oil supplies a large part of the oil supplies that China, South Korea, Japan, Taiwan depend upon flow through those waters, and uh, the Chinese uh, have always have said for decades that it is uh, part of China, 
And in fact, when I talk to Chinese, they tell me that in school, they were taught that it was part of China. The rest of the world doesn't recognize that. It says this is open ocean uh, and uh, you know the law of the sea should govern it, not uh, historical claims which China is making. And China has uh, militarized it. It has uh, uh, turned uh, islands into sort of stationary uh, aircraft carriers. It's, it's built islands. And uh, th th so this has been a, a source of contention. And it's particularly in the last uh, decade, it's really emerged as a very key point of contention. Uh, the US does freedom of navigation patrols through there, so does Australia, so does Britain. And the Chinese at every time complain and uh, they harass uh, the ships and so forth. And, um, uh, but it is, uh, it's, it's a very concrete place where these militaries come up uh, against each other in a very tangible way. And uh, no other countries really recognize China's claim to it, but China says it's ours and it's not going to back off from that. And so it's one of the things that has become just a constant uh, chronic source of tension in the relationship. And, uh, you know, if I can just elaborate on that, one of the things that really struck me, particularly when I was doing the revision, was just looking how the language of China about the United States and the language about, of the United States about China has changed. So if I can, I just want to lay that out. And, you know, in yesterday's agreement between Russia and uh, China, China used the phrase they use, unilateral, unilateralism. And unilateralism is a synonym for the United States. That's their thing. We have sovereignty. You can't tell us what to do. Um, uh, the U.S., in the last national security statement of the Obama administration, it talked about engagement with China, working with them on climate and so forth. Five years later, the first national security statement from the Biden administration uh, talks about strategic rival, great power competition. And the striking thing, Andrew, they're written by the same people. It's the same people writing it. But that shows you how much this has changed and goes to the points you're talking about which is this kind of polarization, uh, nuclear mm, it, war. It's, uh, it's astonishing uh, how, um, how things in America have changed. And actually talking about this, this simultaneous crisis in the Ukraine and the South China Sea reminds me, Wheatcroft's book about Churchill argues, I think quite rightly, that the Second World War is actually two world wars. One um, in East Asia between the United States and Japan and one in Eastern Europe between Russia and Germany. And actually, the Western Front wasn't very significant. Um, and it seems as if we're stumbling into parallel wars now, one in Asia and one in Eastern Europe. So yeah. history repeats itself, as Marx so famously said, but perhaps not in ways that we would expect. We are talking to Daniel Jurgen, the author of The New Map, Energy, Climate and the Clash of Nations. Uh, it's out in paperback now with some new chapters on the South China Sea, an increasingly relevant book, Making Sense of a Very Complicated World. I was on the show a couple of years ago. Uh, we're going to take a short break, Daniel. And after the, after the break, I want to talk to you specifically about how COVID has changed everything. Um, I want to talk about the environment. And I want to talk about electric vehicles. So stay with us, everyone. We'll be back in about 60 seconds. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're 
listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it, but I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Keenon. We're back with Daniel Jurgen, probably the world's leading authority on energy politics and economics. Uh, his new book, um, the new map, Energy, Climate, and the Clash of Nations, an extremely prescient book. It's just out in paperback with a new section on the South China Sea, a very important new essay. Uh, before the break, Daniel, talking about great power politics, I want to talk about what's happened since we last talked. We talked at the beginning of COVID uh, about 18 months ago. Um, and, and you wrote an interesting piece uh, recently um, in, well, it wasn't so recent, actually, back in October 2020, when we talked originally about how the pandemic might affect the sprint away. I don't know whether that's your word, the sprint away from fossil, uh, from, from fossil fuels. When the history of fossil fuels gets written, is there going to be a chapter on COVID? How significant has it been? Well, I think COVID... Um... I mean, I think these two years now as we're as heading into our third year will be seen, you know, this has changed many things. I mean, for instance, one reason people are having delays in getting goods and so forth is six years of uh, e-commerce development has been compressed into a year, year and a half. And I don't think that's going to change. Uh, work patterns have changed. Uh, some people are saying five days a week to the office. Some are saying three. Some are saying it's up to you. So does it matter, time. though, in terms of energy politics, whether we work from home or from the office? I guess it's about commuting, is it? Yeah, it, it you know, it matters in some barrels. But then, you know, what happens? People are using their cars to drive elsewhere. So it's not a it's not it's not decisive. It's not. Uh, fundamental change. I think people, there was this assumption, some said during COVID, oh, world oil demand has reached its peak. It's never going to, it's going to go down from here. Well, guess what? It's going up. Uh, this year, world oil demand will be higher than it was in 2019 and will probably continue to increase for another eight years or so. 
So um, I, maybe COVID will be seen as a hiatus. What it certainly did is advance digitalization and digital communication. And uh, I, I think that, you know, lasting, lasting change. Uh, as we were talking before the show started, we don't really know what the psychological legacy of COVID will be in terms of development and particularly the impact on children on a generation. Uh, it sped up some kinds of innovation. You know, at the beginning, they say, oh, vaccines take five years and the vaccines were done in nine months. So, uh, you know, techno although built upon 30 years of research to get to the to that uh, final sprint. So, uh, you know, I think that, uh, and then the larger question you raise really about energy transition, uh, I think, you know, I, in the new map, I really look closely at the history of energy transitions and even when the energy transition began, which I dated at January of 1709. And these unfold over a long time. So it's very ambitious to say you're going to change the energy foundations of what today is a $90 trillion economy in 28 years and do half of that in eight years. I mean, the direction is clear, but uh, the scale of it and the complexity and uh, the shocks, I mean, we're basically, even before, even before Ukraine, Europe was in the grip of an energy crisis and it still is. Yeah, you had a piece in the Atlantic, why energy transition will be so complicated. Um... And you also had an interesting piece in Politico about the major problems blocking America's electric car future. Um, are, are, is the future of the electric car, is that inevitable, Daniel? Or, I mean, well, gas I prices think, are so high now in the U.S., it makes no sense to me why anyone would buy a gas car. Yeah, and um, and if you live in California, as you do, Andrew, they're even higher. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, $5 a, a gallon. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and uh, so I think the electric cars the, and the electric car costs are, you know, it's pretty heavily incentivized or subsidized, whatever term you want. And so, I mean, I'm seeing just driving on the streets of Washington, I'm seeing a lot of uh, of the of the smaller Teslas now. I mean, it's do you, you know, have an electric car? No, we still have. Um, we have oh my our, God! So if you don't have one, who's ever going to get? No, one? but uh, you know we have our. What do you expect? We have our eleven-year-old Volvo. I'm I'm embarrassed to admit. So, uh, you know, if, uh, but I have said to my wife, next one's it's got to be an EV. And so, uh, well, it's uh, interesting that you you at the beginning you 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 talked about um, how Putin is in a strong position because of the strength of the oil market, but. Um, uh, back in March 2020, you talk, you, you had a piece in the in the journal about how COVID yeah. has made the oil markets sweat. The markets yeah. have come back. Why? Well, they've come back. And I think what's inherent in your question is these markets are cyclical. We'll see high prices today. There's always the old joke is, uh, not a joke, the truism that the cure for high prices is high prices because it will speed up. People buying exactly what you described. People five dollar gasoline in California. People will buy an electric car instead. Uh, and so right now the markets are very tight because of uh, partly, I think, this is another consequence par partly related to COVID underinvestment in conventional energy on the basis that the transition will happen so fast, and demand. The economies have come back despite Omicron more strongly than anticipated. 
And uh, so that's driven up demand. So you have a very tight market. And then it turns out some of the oil exporting countries, the traditional ones just can't regain their old level of production because they didn't make investment. They didn't do maintenance. And, you know, the fastest growing source of new oil is, guess what? The rebound in U.S. shale. Yeah, well, that's a politically controversial issue. You've had a couple of pieces recently about why the supply chain crunch will continue in 2022, this Washington Post piece, and then another one about how automakers, the chip famine will persist. Um, I haven't seen anything from you, though, Daniel, on the significance of inflation and how this connects with uh, supply chain crisis and the price of oil. Is that bound up or is that something? Oh, absolutely, separate? absolutely. Be between both the higher price of energy you know, the price of uh, fuel goes up. It has to be passed on in terms of uh, manufacturers. It it's passed on in terms of people moving goods, trucks and transportation. And then uh, the supply chain disruption, uh, it just continues. Just yesterday, I was hearing about another dimension of supply chain that construction companies doing big billion dollar projects can't get all the parts or all the equipment they need. And so those projects get delayed or the price uh, goes up there too because uh, because they're in short supply. So this pervasive, it's not just one supply chain; it's a whole host of supply chain problems, and that's why you know if you go into you know many of the people watching or listening, if they pop into the uh, to their grocery store or supermarket, we'll see a lot of empty shelves uh, because things are just not getting delivered. The system is not is has not caught up. Part of it is COVID. Part of it is uh, people quitting being truck drivers uh but part of it is the backup of the port of the ports and it's one thing just feeds into the, the the one supply chain feeds into the next supply chain problem so i think that's with us at least uh for a good part of uh, 2022 daniel the first part of the show we talked about geostrategic crisis for the united states and the second part we've been talking about uh, smaller crises of inflation, supply chain, um, price of oil. Uh, I wonder how we connect these. Yesterday, uh, I had Christopher Leonard. He has a wonderfully important new book out, I think, called The Lords of Easy Money, How the Federal Reserve Broke the American Economy by Essentially Becoming an Excuse to Print Money. Um, is that how we connect the decline of America, um, the rise of China and Russia, and the current various economic crises of, of our COVID age. Well, uh, anything. The Federal anything, Reserve's yeah. failure to kind of face up to the current crisis. Well, I think uh, I, t I would tend to separate them. I think th that is more into kind of the, the macroeconomics. Uh, but I think that uh, now that, you know, the, the availability of money certainly has fueled inflation, and at some point they're going to, you know, they're, they're going to start raising interest rates. And then the question is, does the economy go in reverse? Are we in another cycle as has often happened when the Fed raises rates? But I think the, the it's the division and polarization uh, in the United States. I think what you asked about before, and I think you see it too. I mean, it's such a message to the rest of the world that you have not only Donald Trump uh, saying that our electoral system doesn't work, but Joe Biden, with his uh, speech he gave in Georgia about the, the hit the voting bill he wanted, also saying the election's not working. So it means, but from the left and the right people, 
are are questioning the, the basic way the country basic way the country works and you know the middle feels left out of the out of the discussion and so you and i do think and i think this is what you're getting at there is a geopolitical consequence of this because the rest of the world sees it they pay a lot of attention to what's happening in the united states and you don't see a united or cohesive country you certainly don't um at the beginning of camera, uh, Daniel, we were talking about what we both see as the anxiety gripping uh, the generation of our children, maybe not our particular children, but uh, the younger generation. And you noted you thought one of the reasons for that was this sense of an impending environmental apocalypse. We've done many, many shows on this. I recently had the wonderful young writer, Debbie Lockwood, who rode a bicycle around the world viewing the, the personal impact of climate change. We've talked about uh, the politics of this with uh, Chris Goodall, for example, about carbon neutral politics. What's your take on the current situation, the geopolitics of our environmental crisis over the last couple of years? Are things better or worse? Uh, we, of course, did some shows on the Glasgow conference, the UN conference that didn't seem to have changed anything. Uh, the so-called blah, 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 as one uh, one well-known campaign activist noted. Is anything changing on the environmental politics well, front? Well, I think I was talking this morning with uh, uh, somebody else who works in the area of geopolitics, was talking about having this energy crisis, basically. Uh, you know, it was in China in the autumn, they were rationing electricity and telling, saying you can't, if you want, only want to go to the second or third floor, you can't take the elevator. You have to save electricity. You have to walk. And it continues in Europe where they're looking at natural gas prices four times normal. So I think it's, it's, it's jarring and it raises questions. And, you know, you see the, that, you know, renewables, solar costs, we have a solar revolution costs have come down, wind, but it's just going to, it takes time. You don't just change it overnight. And I think this, um, you know, climate is something that unfolds over decades. It's not something that happens next year. But uh, I think there is, particularly among young people, the sense that there's an apocalypse that's going to happen. Well, Greta Thunberg is sort of captures that both yeah. perhaps in a positive and a more critical way. She talked, as I said earlier, when she was in Glasgow about the blah, blah, blah of UN bureaucrats well, doing yeah, this stuff yeah, and doing but nothing. You know, I, you know, but Andrew, it, it really, I mean, the question is that it's a big complex thing to change the economy and the blah, blah, right. blah saying you could do it overnight. Uh, California, I think at five o'clock in California, 3% uh, of the electricity comes from solar and 70% from natural gas. Uh, it's, you know, running these big complex energy systems uh, is quite different than blah, blah, blah. Yeah, no, no, and, I, and, I, and I'm not necessarily in her camp, but what I wanted to ask you was, as, as a final part of this conversation, and I, I definitely want you back on the show, Daniel, later this year, because you, you talk, you, your, your knowledge of so many different areas is essential, but getting beyond the blah, 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 are there, are there a couple of things that you'd like to see that are doable in the next couple of years when it comes to the environment? so that we wouldn't continue continue to have the same conversation and then the younger generation would continue to be so 
fearful of this supposed apocalypse. Yeah, yeah, I, I think it'd be, frankly, I'm not going to encourage, I mean, it's sort of like young people being afraid of nuclear war in the 1950s or the 1960s. And that was a very imminent threat. And there were a couple of times where it really was a close call. Here, it would probably be understanding that this unfolds over time. And the real answers are not going to are going to be technology. I, mean, I, right I take now, that. But so g- give me a couple of real answers that can we, we can start supporting and promoting and getting involved with over the last couple of years in, in, over the over the next couple of years. Well, I think I don't know if we can be, but the answer well, not you and I, but our engineering we'll and technology. I think like right now, the hot subject uh, among people about the energy mix, the European Union says that hydrogen is going to provide 25% of its energy in 2050. And that may happen, but there is actually, there is a hydrogen business, but it's used in oil refineries, it's used to make fertilizer. There isn't a hydrogen energy business. So demonstrating that there is a hydrogen energy business would be a contribution uh, to that, but that takes money and it takes engineering. And I think that's maybe what gets left out of the discussion is there is no, there's just not a magic wand here uh, to change things. It's just, it's uh, the electric car is going to come. But by the way, 20% of electric car is made out of plastic, which is an oil and gas product. And the other thing we haven't talked about and something I'm looking at and with other researchers is the amount of minerals and metals that will be necessary uh, to uh, get to net zero carbon and the scale of them. And by the way, where are those going to come from? And we'll save this for next time, but it gets us back into geopolitics because who has a dominant position in many of these uh, sources, whether it's 80% of the world's solar panels or 80% of the world's lithium ion batteries, where do they come from? China. Well, perhaps uh, Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos are right to um, pioneer space travel, Daniel. Well, yeah. Uh, let's put it this way. They haven't gotten to scale yet, (laughs) but, uh, that's, uh, Daniel Jurgen's uh, humor. Um, the new map, wonderful book, energy, climate, and the clash of nations. Great to have you, Daniel, on the show. Uh, It's a central reading. The book's just come out with a a new essay on the South China sea. In addition to uh, the paperback version of your new book, what else should people be reading in these strange, perhaps chilling times in early early February 2022, Daniel? Well, a couple of things. One, I, I just read Sebastian Malaby's book, The Power Ah, of, yes. Sebastian the Power was Law. on the show uh, yeah. earlier this week. Yeah. And I found it a fascinating insight uh, to realize that how much of what we know in our world today came out of that ecosystem of Silicon Valley. And he really explains how it happens. And he does it as a story. Second book I read, and, and, and it's it's also worth noting about Malaby's book on venture capital that he writes about the, the the changes in the financial system, the way in which venture capital has become a parallel system to banking. So, just as we've talked today, Daniel, about changes in energy, same is happening in finance. Yeah, and he does it. He makes it a very good story, so that you, mm. how did this actually happen? Then I read a book recently called The Cloud Revolution by a man named Mark Mills about new technologies uh, and just how will the cloud be like the technology innovation at the beginning of the 20th century that just changed society. And then I'm reading, yeah, it's quite an interesting book. And then I'm reading a book I should have read before for just a little enlightenment and guidance called The uh, Great Influenza by John Barry, 
about the, the flu epidemic of uh, 1918 to 1920, and particularly want to get to the chapters to see how did it end and what are the lessons from that. Well, I think it's quite an achievement, Daniel, uh, the author of uh, the new map, Energy, Climate, and the Clash of Nations. We've had uh, a 35, almost 40-minute conversation about the future of energy. We didn't mention the Middle East. We didn't mention Saudi. That must say something, Daniel. Maybe you come back on the show later this year and we can talk about the modern Middle East um, and how it's changing because of the new map of energy. Daniel Jurgen, as always, a real honor and pleasure. We need guys like you to make sense of the complexity of the world. Keep well. Thank you so much. Thank you, Andrew. And it was great to be on with you again.